we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the wedding at Cana. That's the Bible passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And I've requested Joshua to come and read it out for us. John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. Has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, when the master of feast tasted, the water now became wine and did, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very familiar passage. Um, countless sermons have been preached on it. Um, for those of you who've been with New City for a while, you'll remember three years ago we did a sermon series titled The Bridegroom Messiah, and we preached a sermon uh, on this very passage. And if you'd like to go back, you can go back online, search for it. It's available on our, on our website. I would encourage you to listen to that again. Uh, that's, that's, and we're kind of taking a slightly different tack in this sermon, but I really encourage you to go back and listen to this. Um, we're reading through the book of John uh, as a church using the Seeing Jesus Together um, Bible reading journal. And uh, as we were reading through the book of John, I read this chapter again, and I felt really, really compelled to preach on that. There were some fresh insights that I felt the Lord lay on my heart. I felt the Lord minister to my heart. And so I was compelled to preach uh, from this passage again. And I'd like to draw out two very simple things for us from this passage. The immediate and the obvious joy that we see at the wedding and the deeper and invisible joy that we do not see at the wedding. So two things. The immediate an obvious joy, and the deeper and invisible joy. Those are two things we're going to draw out for us from this passage. Let's start with the first one, the immediate and the obvious joy. The wedding at Cana was, was a happy party. Everybody was happy at the wedding. To begin with, Mary was happy. You know, when Mary asked Jesus, there's no wine, she did not expect him to do a miracle. Because if you read the, read the biblical account of Jesus' childhood, except for that one time where he went into the temple and he was teaching and he was uh, looking at God's word and teaching, there is no biblical record of Jesus having done any miracle until that point in time. Mary knew that he was special because he was born 
when she was still a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary knew that, but there was no evidence of Jesus having done any miracle till then. This is the beginning of his public ministry. So when Mary actually told Jesus there's no wine, she was not expecting him to do a miracle. She was just expecting him to be resourceful and to help. And if you remember, Joseph by then had passed away and Mary was a widow. And Jesus was the eldest son in the family. And he had the responsibility. So through the years, every time Mary needed any help, because she had no husband, she would turn to her eldest son, Jesus. Can you be resourceful and help us with this? So when Mary tells Jesus they've run out of wine, this is what she had in mind. So she, she expected Jesus to help practically, maybe go buy some wine. That, that's, that's what she expected Jesus to do. She did not expect Jesus to turn water into wine. And so Mary would have been very happy. The master of the feast, we can see from the passage, he was very happy. I'm guessing he would have had a few drinks by then. And I'm kind of imagining him saying this, you know, with a glass in hand, he goes up to the bridegroom, you know, pats him on his back or puts his arm around his shoulder uh, and says, wow, you've saved the best for the last. Um, uh, You know, that's a kind of compliment Uh, that someone from the bride's family would give to the groom's family. In that culture, the responsibility for the wedding rested with the groom. And so I'm kind of assuming that this this master of the feast was from the bride's family. He was very happy that the way the groom had organized the wedding, the best wine was flowing out, and and that's, that's what I imagine he would have done. So he was a happy man. The bridegroom also was a happy man. Obviously, it was his wedding. Uh, but more than that, he also received this compliment from the master of the feast. And that was, he could have been shamed. I don't think he realized it at that point in time. If the wine had ran out, it would have been a huge embarrassment in that culture. It would have been shameful for the groom the wine had ran out. He didn't realize this at that point in time. Uh, but maybe he knew that there was not enough wine. Uh, maybe he was not a very well-to-do groom. And I'm, kind of, I'm assuming that again because he's not named in this passage. Maybe he was just an ordinary person. Maybe he didn't have enough. Maybe he knew that there was not enough wine. And so when he actually found that the wine was enough, without, even, even without realizing Jesus had done a miracle, he would have been happy. He would have been very happy because I'm sure this party well, went well into the night with all the good wine flowing. So the bridegroom was a happy man. I'm sure the bride was happy too. Nothing is mentioned about her, but by all accounts, this sounded like a grand wedding. All the guests at the wedding, I'm sure they were happy. The passage tells us there were were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. All of them were filled miraculously with wine. Six jars, 22 Um, uh, 30 gallons each, do the math, we're talking about 800 to 900 liters of wine. That's a lot of wine for a small wedding party at a small little town called Cana. Maybe there were 100 people at the wedding. 900 liters? 900 liters of wine? I mean, each bottle today is, I think, 600 milliliters. So it's more than 900 bottles. You're probably talking about 1,200 bottles of wine uh, for a wedding of maybe 100 people. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus pick the stone jars 
kept for purification. Purification, when in, in Jewish culture, when people would come and they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet before they enter their home. And so there were these big jars kept, and they would take water from the jar, wash their feet, and then go into the home. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus pick the stone jars to fill with wine? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. I only have a theory. It may be true, may not be true. Uh, but I think it's an interesting theory, a theory worth considering. I think Jesus picked the stone jars because those were the biggest vessels available. When he decided to turn water into wine, Jesus picked the biggest vessel that was available. There was nothing bigger. The biggest thing was available was a stone jar, and so he filled it with wine. Why did Jesus want so much wine at the wedding? We'll answer that question at the end. That question we answered at the earlier sermon, but we'll come back to it just a little bit at the end. So there was plenty of wine, and the wine was flowing freely, and it was good wine. So obviously the wedding guests were very happy. So this was one happy wedding. Everybody at the wedding were happy. That's, that's the first thing I wanted to help us see. The visible and the obvious joy. The second thing I want to invite us to see this morning is the deeper and the invisible joy. The deeper and the invisible joy. We know everyone was happy at the wedding at Cana. But who was the happiest among them all? Have you ever thought of that? I know we know everyone was happy, but who was the happiest among them all? Who at the wedding had the greatest joy? Who at the wedding had the deepest joy? I think this is an interesting and a very important question to consider. Was it Mary who was the happiest person who experienced the deepest joy at the wedding? I'm sure Mary would have been overjoyed to see her son Jesus do, do this miracle. But if you see the passage, there's also a very uh, mild rebuke that Jesus had for Mary. You know, Mary just wanted to fix the problem at the wedding. That was her agenda. But Jesus had come to the wedding with a different agenda. Jesus' intention was not to just fix the wine problem. He through the miracle of turning water into wine, Jesus was making a greater statement as to who he was. Mary only wanted the groom at Cana to, Mary only wanted to save the groom some embarrassment, but Jesus did that miracle to tell the whole world that he was the true and better bridegroom. He wanted to tell the world that he is the bridegroom Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament, who has come. We're going to unpack this some more at the end. So I don't think Mary experienced the deepest and the greatest joy as this miracle was being played out. So was it the master of the feast who experienced the deepest and the greatest joy? I, I don't think so. You know, he was just one of those blokes, a good guy, I'm sure. Uh, maybe he had a way of, of making these parties come alive. You know, he, he was that kind of a guy. We all know a guy like that. You bring him into a party, he's going to make the party come alive. He was just that kind of a guy. I don't think he experienced the deepest joy in the entire wedding as his miracle was being played out. So was it the guests? Was it the guests who experienced the deepest joy? I don't think so. Um, sure, this wedding was fun. 
But then they had no idea that Jesus had actually turned water into wine. The passage is very clear. It says only the servants knew. They had no idea at all that Jesus had turned water into wine. This was just another party for them. They had no idea that the wine was a miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. So I don't think they experienced the deepest and the greatest joy in this miracle. That leaves us with the bridegroom. Did he experience the deepest and the greatest joy in this incident that is described to us in the Bible? He he gained the most, did he not? He was saved from public shame. Imagine not being able to get your wedding right. Imagine guests have come and there's no wine at the wedding. In that culture, it would have been shameful. He was saved a lot of shame. You know, he may not have realized it, as I said earlier, at that point in time. But I'm sure the bridegroom was still full of joy. And, you know, the party would have gone on. You'd have seen all the guests celebrating. And, you know, when, when the energy from the flow would have, would have got to him as well. And he would have really seen that, that the wedding was going very well. And he would have felt very overjoyed. But was he, did he experience the greatest and the deepest joy at the wedding? I don't think so. So who was it? Who was it that experienced the deepest and the greatest joy at this wedding in Cana where Jesus miraculously turned water into wine? Let me give us a clue. The one who experienced the closest fellowship with Jesus at the wedding was the one who experienced the greatest and the deepest joy. And do you know who that was? It was the servants. It was the servants. The servants who quietly and silently labored with Jesus behind the scenes, they experienced the greatest and the deepest joy. You know, you see, nobody else, nobody else at the wedding had seen Jesus turn water into wine except the servants. Everybody else had the passing joy of merely drinking the wine that Jesus had turned from water. Only the servants had the lasting joy. Only the servants had the thrill of seeing Jesus turn water into wine. When Jesus said, fill the jars with water, the servants did it. And if you look at the passage closely, the passage says they filled it to the brim. The fact that they filled it to the brim tells us something about these servants. It tells us that these servants were impacted by this person called Jesus. So when when Jesus told them, fill the jars, they were excited. Maybe they had a sense that something was going to happen. And they didn't leave anything undone. They filled it. They filled the jar to the brim. They didn't just fill it halfway through. They filled it to the brim. And then when, when Jesus said, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, they did it. They took, they did it because they had seen Jesus turn water 
into wine. Imagine their delight. Imagine their joy when Jesus used their labor to turn water into wine. Now, we don't know how empty or how full the jars were, but it wouldn't have been easy to carry all that water and fill up the brim. They would have been delighted because Jesus used their labor to turn water into wine. No one at the wedding got to see Jesus as close as these servants. No one in the wedding got to see the miracle from such close quarters. Only the servants had a front row seat to this incredible miracle of turning water into wine. We're going to see it's not just water being turned into wine. Something deeper, something more profound is happening here. Not only did they have a front row seat, they also got to partner with Jesus. They were Jesus' channel of blessing to the guests at the wedding. Yes, Jesus turned water into wine, but the servants had the joy and the privilege of serving every guest at that wedding the wine that Jesus had made. Only they had this joy and the privilege. And so I have to conclude that among all the people at the wedding, it was these unnamed servants who had the greatest and the deepest joy. You know, it's not just at the wedding at Cana. In all of life, the servants who work closely with Jesus for the blessing of others, it is they who have the greatest and the deepest joy. It's true of life, it's true of life here and now. Only the servants, in all of life, the servants who work closely with Jesus for the joy and the blessing of others, they have the, the greatest and the deepest joy. It is so important that we see this, that we understand this, and that we learn in God's grace to live this out in the present culture that we live in. We live in a culture that chases rewards and success and fame. We live in a culture that tells us that we should be the bridegroom in every story. Our culture will never tell you to be the servant in the story. You see, this bridegroom had the best wedding at Cana. He became, I'm sure, the most famous bridegroom in the entire town of Cana because his wedding party rocked the most. That's what we all want, do we not? We live in a culture that disciples us to be the, the disciples us to be the bridegroom in every story. But the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it calls us to be the servant in this incident. The gospel calls us to be the servants who work closely with Jesus for the joy of others. The servants had the deepest and the greatest joy. The joy of the servants was even greater than the joy of the bridegroom. 
It's actually good to hear the kids screaming at the back. Let's take this moment to look deeply into our own hearts. Do we really desire to be servants who labor closely with Jesus for the joy of others? Is, is that the natural posture of our hearts? Let me tell you something else from this passage. The servants never got to taste the wine. Do you know any wedding where a servant, the guys who, the men and women who serve the wine to you are allowed to taste it? The servants, they were serving the wine. In no wedding is a servant ever allowed to drink the wine. I don't think this was an exception. The servants never got to taste the wine, but they got to taste Jesus. Everybody else at the wedding, they got to taste the wine, but they didn't get to taste Jesus. None of them got to taste Jesus. They all had the wine. They all tasted the miracle. But none of them tasted the wine. This must ask us to consider. This must force us to consider. How are we living our lives? Are we living our lives like the guests who tasted the wine but never tasted Jesus? Is that what we want? Is that what we're living for? Is that how we're living? Or are we living like the servants who never tasted the wine, but they tasted Jesus so richly? Are we living for mere success? Or are we living for Jesus? What does this look like in your career? In your everyday work? Is our everyday work all about laboring with Jesus to bring joy and, and blessing to the life of our customers, of our colleagues, of our subordinates, of our bosses? Are we living and laboring to bring, living and laboring with Jesus to bring joy to others? Or has our everyday work become about us drinking the wine of our own success? Is that how we're living? A couple of weeks ago, uh, in a sermon on Colossians, we saw that God was redeeming all things, including our work. We saw that we're not only objects of God's renewal, but we're also agents of God's renewal. So our careers matter to God. And our careers are as holy as our calling to serve in the church. But here's the thing. At the end, when Christ comes again, he is not going to judge us on how successful we are in our careers. He's not going to judge us on how many promotions we got. He doesn't judge, he's not going to judge us whether we are on top of the bell curve or not. He's not going to judge us on, on, on the accomplishments we did while climbing up on the corporate ladder. Jesus is going to judge us on how well and how faithfully we labored with him for the joy and blessing of others. How well we labored, how faithfully we labored for the joy and blessing for the people he placed around us. So which way is your heart oriented toward in your career? Which direction are you facing in your career? You know, when I read John chapter 2 as part of our seeing Jesus together reading plan, 
I did not read the passage to uh, prepare a sermon on it. Um, I was reading the passage just for my own soul. I was reading the passage for, uh, for as part of my daily meditation on God's word. And as I read this, I was ministered to deeply. Personally, I was just so deeply ministered to. Um, Ajay and I, Ajay and I uh, my wife, for those of you who don't know, know her, uh, we planted New City about nine years ago. And ever since, we have been slowly, slowly, very slowly, painfully slowly, I must add, uh, growing in the joy of servanthood. And I'll be the first one to confess it hasn't been easy. Uh, we are far from perfect. Uh, we've failed in many ways, but God has been faithful. But here's the thing about being a pastor and a pastor's wife. Here's the thing. We don't get to participate in the benefits of your growth. But we get to participate in the joy of laboring with Jesus in seeing each of you grow. You see, if each of you grow as a disciple of Christ Jesus, we have nothing to gain from it. We gain nothing except the joy of laboring, of co-laboring with Jesus in seeing every one of you grow in Christ. This is the joy of the servant. This is the deepest and the greater joy. And this is why this passage ministered to my aching heart. My heart was aching as I read this and God knew I needed this passage, which is perhaps why I think the Holy Spirit enabled me to see this passage in a, in a very fresh light. You know, in New City, like, like every other church, people come and people go. It happens. That's, that's a reality. And, and over the years, uh, those of you who have been here long enough, you'll know it. Over the years, we've probably seen at least 50 to 80, and I'm guessing the number is closer to 100, but we've seen at least 50 to 80 people come and go. People come, God brings them, God takes them, we, you know. They come and go. And over the years, Ajay and I and a whole everybody else along with us together, we've loved and served them faithfully. But you see, as a pastor, whether they stay or whether they're gone, we don't get any benefit from their growth. We get the deeper joy of laboring with Jesus to see everyone grow in Christ. We, get, we don't get to taste the wine, but we get to taste Jesus. Now, are we honest here? There are many, many, many disappointments and discouragements in pastoral ministry. Many. Even more so, because pastoral ministry is all about people. And it can be very discouraging at times. But as I began to see the deeper joy of servanthood from this passage, my aching heart was deeply ministered to. And I know this will minister to Felix and Taru too as it is ministering to me. This is their calling too. But that said, that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm just building something to make the larger point. The calling to servanthood is not only for pastors. I would be completely wrong. I would be unbiblical if that's what I'm communicating. Not at all. The call of servanthood is there upon every 
believer in the church. God's design for the church is not that pastors would do all the labor, not at all. God's design for the church is for all of us to labor together to build his kingdom here on earth. Sure, pastors and elders have a little more responsibility, but all of us are called to serve. And New City, as a church, we are in a season where we need more leaders. New City is looking for leaders. We are growing. We need more groups. We need to be more out there on mission. We need to be serving the poor more than we are doing right now. We need leaders. At some point of time, New City is going to have to start appointing elders. We need leaders. What kind of leaders is New City looking for? What kind of leaders is is every church looking for? We're looking for leaders who are servants who will work intimately with Jesus for the joy and blessing of others. We're looking for leaders who won't mind it at all if they don't get to taste of the wine. We're looking for leaders who are longing to taste in Christ, taste of Christ more than anything else. More than anything else. Is God tugging at your heart right now? Is God calling you to be that kind of a leader? This call to servanthood is a call to die to self and live for others just as Jesus died to himself and lived for others. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. Jesus kept teaching this to us over and over and over again. Are you one of them? Are you willing to be the Christ-like leader or who will die to himself, who will die to herself and labor closely with Jesus in bringing joy and blessing to others? Would you wrestle with that question? Would you wrestle with that question? Would you allow God, if God is moving your heart right now, would you allow God to engage you on that question? Would you allow him to show you in what areas you can come alongside and and serve? Let me close with one last thought. The thought we began with, why did Jesus turn water into wine? Why 900 liters of wine? Again, please do go back to the earlier sermon. There's a far more detailed answer, but let me Let me answer that quickly here. Did Jesus make all that wine because he wanted everyone at the wedding to be happy? Did Jesus um, do it because Mary asked him for help and and he wanted to help the wedding party? Uh, Did he do it because he wanted to save the bridegroom from public embarrassment? Sure, they may all have been small reasons, but that was not the primary. That was not Jesus' agenda at the wedding. Jesus went to that wedding with an agenda. Here's the agenda. You see, the earthly earthly bridegroom in the wedding at Cana had failed. The earthly bridegroom had failed to provide wine at his own wedding. And Jesus stepped in and turned water into wine 
to show us that he was the true and better bridegroom. True and better bridegroom. If you read the Old Testament, it's full of accounts how mountains will overflow with wine when the Messiah comes. There are maybe 15 references. It's then the other sermon. I'm not going to go into it. That's why the abundance of wine. He wanted to tell people, you read in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, there would be abundance of wine. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom Messiah who will never fail you. I have come and here is the abundance of wine. Through the miracle, Jesus wanted to tell the world that he is the bridegroom Messiah. It's significant. He's not a Messiah from far away. He is a bridegroom Messiah. He's not a cold and distant savior. He's not an unapproachable savior. He's not a savior who's going to sit far away and frown at your failures. No, he is an intimate savior. He is your bridegroom Messiah. But I want to add one more layer to this. And we'll close with this thought. Jesus is not just the true and better bridegroom. Jesus is also the true and better servant. You see, he's not just the true and better bridegroom. He's the true and better servant. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. He became our bridegroom by laying his life down for us. He came as a servant. I have come to serve. Jesus kept saying again and again and not to be served. I have come to serve, Jesus said, and not to be served. He walked with us as our servant. Even though he was fully God, just as he was fully man, he endured every trial, every tribulation, every disappointment that we will ever face. Jesus was conned by the ones he came to save. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples as a servant. One of the disciples whose feet he washed betrayed him to death on the cross with a kiss. The kiss of death. Almost all of the other disciples whose feet he also washed abandoned him in his darkest moment, the cross. And yet Jesus remained faithful, faithful to death, even death on a cross, so that through his death and through his resurrection, we might have eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as a servant of men to lay down his life for us. You see, Jesus is not just the true and better bridegroom. He's also the true and better servant. What are you going to choose daily? What are we going to choose daily? Are we going to choose the passing joy of being at the fringe of this great party of Christ? Are we going to Choose the passing joy of tasting the wine and being at the outer fringes of the party and not really tasting the joy of servanthood with Christ. Or are we going to choose to live like Christ-like servants, like the servants in the wedding at Cana, 
and find the deeper joy of serving others with Christ. You know, the very nature of the gospel, God coming to die for a man, opens the window for everything else being upside down. Everything else. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. Career, financial security, they're all good things. They're all beautiful blessings from God. But when we learn to put Christ first, that is when we discover the deepest joy that every one of our hearts are aching for. Let us pray. Uh, Father, even as we repented, Lord, and believed in Jesus in the time of prayer, we come to you in repentance and faith. Oh, we have failed you, Lord. We, I, I confess, I repent for myself and on behalf of others. We have not been that servant who may not have tasted the wine, but they tasted Jesus. And even now, Lord, our hearts are not longing for you. My heart is not longing for you. But we come together as a church. We humble ourselves. We repent and we pray, Lord, only you can change us. Only the power of your resurrection can change us. Only your Holy Spirit who is living inside of us can change us. Come, Lord. Change every one of us. Every one of us. We also pray for those of us in New City who are not here today, Lord. Would you bless them? Would you change them too? That together we would be the church that you have called us to be. The hope of the world. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.